This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer. Great to have your company. And this is Between the Lines. Well, recent weeks have witnessed a return to the kind of violence that has roiled Israel and the West Bank for a long time. Now, as anger builds on both sides, is the new Israeli government able to calm things down? And is the Palestinian leadership able to step up? Well, to address the state of the Middle East, let's turn to one of the most seasoned observers of US foreign policy. Walter Russell Mead is a fellow at the Hudson Institute and the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal. His new book, widely praised and reviewed across the United States, it's called The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel and the Future of the Jewish People. Walter, welcome back to Between the Lines. It's great to be back, Don. Now, let's talk about the state of play right now in the Middle East. It's widely described as far-right, hawkish, religious government. Israel, the critics say, has no interest in calming the situation down and that a certain level of violence might actually play into their hands. Is there any justice to that argument? No, I think it's a, a, a I, I don't think there's any sign of that. Um, it's clearly a problem for the government, regardless of what its policy goals might be with the Palestinians. Um, having violence, having your citizens killed, um, it, it's not anything that, that uh, the Netanyahu government would like to see. Critics would say that Israel's cabinet, and we all too often hear it's the most extreme, most right-wing cabinet in Israeli history, they'd say that the cabinet, and this is true, it has approved uh, the legalisation of something like nine illegal settler outposts in the occupied West Bank. The critics would say, how on earth does that help the peace process, given that these settlements in the Palestinian territories are illegal under international law? Well, of course, the Israelis don't accept that it's illegal under international law. That's a matter of dispute. But I think the, you know, it, realistically speaking, uh, there isn't much of a peace process either way at this point to say. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, the, the peace, the old peace process that we've known uh, isn't just pining for the fjords. It really is dead. And the question is, what comes next? Um, I don't personally think that that uh, approving illegal settlements is a positive thing. But it's also clear that Prime Minister Netanyahu is trying to balance different forces in his coalition. And there's some things that I think he won't want to give them. And then other things he he gives people to sort of keep them quiet and keep them contented. It's a balancing act. I want to talk about the, the, the balancing act and particularly the Biden administration's role here very soon. But just on the illegal settlements, I was struck by a recent sentence in a column uh, in the Wall Street Journal. You said, Middle Eastern Jews often feel no responsibility for or guilt about the plight of the Palestinians. Tell us more. There's a kind of a misconception that you often hear that the Jews in Israel are largely West European Jews who came in the 1930s and 40s, sort of like colonizers into the Middle East. And certainly there are Israeli Jews who, who have that background. But more Israeli Jews are Jews from the Middle East. Some of them from countries like Yemen had begun migrating from Yemen to, 
Palestine even before the, the Zionist movement got going. But um, the, the vast bulk of them came after 1948 when many Arab governments expelled their Jews in retaliation for the war. So uh, many of the Middle Eastern Jews now, uh, whose descendants now live in Israel, are refugees who lost everything. So they look at a Palestinian, they say, you lost your house, I lost my house. Uh, you have the United Nations, the whole world weeps for your plight. No one cares about me. No one is interested in about me. In fact, they say I'm illegitimate here. You very rarely hear this argument. So just to clarify, these Middle Eastern Jews, their ancestors were driven from their homes in Arab countries because of the conflict. Yes. And it's it's roughly I mean, you know, these numbers are hard to get accurately, but essentially it's it's roughly the same number of Jews were driven from their homes as Palestinians. And the thing is that Bibi Netanyahu's coalition, his supporters tend to come from this uh, mm. Middle Eastern Jewish population and their hardline attitudes, their lack of trust toward the Arabs their uh, lack of sympathy for the Palestinians reflects their own historical experience as a persecuted minority in the Middle East. Okay, now that brings us to Netanyahu and this space that you're talking about. Now, to the extent they're less willing to give up on the West Bank and these settlements, I mean, that's self-evidently a problem for Washington and American Jews. Now, Washington maintains uh, that the path forward is for the Israelis and the Palestinians to live together. We've heard that before. They can be, uh, you know, the, the Palestinians have their own state along, alongside a democratic Israel. That's the goal. And it's been 30 years since the Oslo Accords, which I'm sure you covered at the time, Walter. I mean, who can forget the image of President Clinton gracefully shepherding Arafat and Rabin through their awkward moment of public reconciliation. That was just outside the, the White House 30 years ago this September. I mean, is there any real chance of reviving this two-state solution? I know you said you were sceptical, but surely given that Anthony Blinken still keeps talking about the two-state solution, there must be a chance of reviving it. Well, I don't think, I don't think Secretary Blinken will be the man who revives the two-state solution um, because what a lot of people on the on the left in the U.S. don't really understand, and this was, I think, also true of the Obama administration's peace diplomacy, was that the fundamental goal of both the Obama and the Biden administrations is to get the U.S. out of the Middle East as much as possible. Um, they don't want more wars in the Middle East. They see the Middle East as a distraction from their concerns with China and these days also with Russia. Okay, that's that's a point of view. The problem is, you know, as the U.S. is seen to be exiting, no one in the region, Arabs, Israelis, Palestinians, no one has, you know, everyone thinks less of whatever the United States wants to do. The United States is becoming less important. And so the U.S. has less leverage, both with the Israelis and the Palestinians. And that sort of contradiction of wanting to double down and push harder on the Palestinian issue while in fact moving away from the region and reducing your influence and prestige is a problem that kind of haunted the Obama administration. And I think it's popping up again uh, with the Biden folks. And this comes at a time when many American colleges, universities, they're increasingly passing, what is it, the, the boycott 
divestment sanctions resolutions. This is the BDS. I mean, will that have any impact on US policy towards Israel and the West Bank? Probably not much. Um, and it will have less impact on the region. There's a kind of an illusion out there that Israel really is only survives because it's propped up by the United States. And that if the United States were to turn its back on Israel or leave the Middle East, then Israel would be much weaker and would have no choice but to make large concessions to the Palestinians. This is it's probably the opposite is the case, that it's the U.S. presence and the desire to keep the alliance that, that to some degree restrains Israeli policy. But it's also, we should, we should never forget that Israel did not become great because it had an alliance with the Americans. It gained an alliance with the Americans after it had become a great power and a nuclear power uh, in the region. So from 1948 to 1973, the United States really had very little to do with Israel. It was our, the French gave Israel nuclear technology, provided the weapons that won the 1967 war. The Soviet Union actually provided the Israelis with the weapons that, that won their war of independence. And so Israel had already had won the Six-Day War, become a great power in the region before the United States and Israel began to become allies in the 1970s. And the truth is, if the United States were to turn its back on Israel today, there's a long line of countries. I can think of Russia, China, uh, India, just right off the top of my head, who would absolutely love to enjoy the kind of close relationship with Israel that the United States does. It's this new um, anti-Zionism that you talk about. That's primarily on the left. Uh, and they're, they're the ones primarily putting the pressure on the administration. But I remember, uh, and I think you've mentioned this before in your previous writings, Walter, it was Pat Buchanan, the, the Republican firebrand uh, presidential candidate who challenged the establishment candidates in the 1990s. It was kind of like a, a precursor to Donald Trump. He used to argue that the, um, the American relationship with Israel is the result of Jewish control of the media and politics. And he said that uh, Congress is Israeli-occupied territory. So this goes beyond left and right in America, doesn't it? Yeah, you you have both on the far right and the far left in the United States, you have both anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. And that's, you know, that's a global phenomenon as well. It's mm. one of the places where far right activists and far left activists, they meet is a, a, a suspicion, fear of Jews, a dislike of Israel, the left tends to identify more with the Palestinians, while the right is not, you know, sort of just doesn't want any of them, doesn't like any of them. Yeah. But it's a it's a real um, it is an issue. And in times like this of polarization, of economic uh, unrest, of kind of social lack of cohesion and questions over, you know, is America is liberalism a decent ideology? Does America still work? You're having the, you're seeing a return to the kinds of anti-Semitism that we've seen in the past. And religious hate crimes reported in the U.S. these days, Walter. Tell us about that. Well, exactly. Jews are, if, if you are an Orthodox Jew in the United States, you are, you are more likely, your risk of being subjected to a hate crime is greater than other groups. It's still a rather marginal phenomenon, certainly by global standards, but we are seeing a return of anti-Jewish attacks 
And again, sometimes by people who you would think of as being on the left, and sometimes by people you would think of as being on the right. And all this comes at a time when Israel enjoys, let's be frank, unprecedented friendly relations with many of the powerful Sunni Arab states, because like Israel, they're worried about Iran, correct? That's exactly right. You know, particularly, again, as, as both the Sunni Arabs and the Israelis lose a little bit of confidence in America's willingness to protect them, they have to start thinking about, well, what would life be like in a post-American world? And they look at Iran today, they might look at Turkey in the future or other countries, and they think, we have to stick together if we're, if we're going to have any hope of maintaining our independence and our prosperity. So you're actually seeing the, um, the sort of very, very public rise of an Arab-Israeli alliance in the Middle East. Wow. And what are the consequences of that Arab-Israeli alliance to primarily deter Iran? What are the consequences of that for the Palestinian leadership that's also being subjected to an immense uh, criticism? Yeah, I think this is... Um uh, this will be an issue, especially for the leadership. I think it could work out well for ordinary Palestinians because I could see the Arabs coming together with the Israelis and saying, look, it's in all of our interests to resolve this this issue, which just keeps causing us all trouble. And so let's push for a settlement where the Arabs would sort of work to foster and develop and promote a Palestinian leadership that had the capability of, of making peace. And the Israelis would see in the guarantees of their Arab partners, the kinds of guarantees and assurances that weak Palestinian leaders have either been unwilling or unable to give them in the past. So it is possible that this new Arab-Israeli uh, alliance could end up providing uh, new hope for the Palestinians. That would certainly be my hope. That was Wall Street Journal columnist Walter Russell Mead. His new book is called The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel and the Future of the Jewish People. Still to come on this episode of Between the Lines, if you write from the point of view of characters from other cultural backgrounds, do you risk being cancelled for cultural appropriation? And I've been having responses from writers who say they find it very difficult because they can't even write about the diverse members of their families. We are in a multicultural uh, society, but if you're going to tackle a culture other than your own, which you probably will need to do if you are writing more than one book, it's only with research and respect. And I think you really have to do your homework. That's Hazel Edwards, author of more than 200 books, including There's a Hippopotamus on Our Roof Eating Cake. She joins me right after a lengthy conversation with Neil Brown, a lion of the Federal Liberal Party, who tells us why he's fallen out of love with the party of Menzies.
Now, if I were to nominate the quirkiest, the wittiest, and the most irreverent columnist across Australia, <laughs> well, my choice would be my next guest, <laughs> Neil Brown. He's a regular contributor to the Australian edition of the UK Spectator. Now, some of you may recall Neil from another life. That's because he was a federal Liberal MP from the late 1960s to the early 1990s. A former Attorney General and Communications Minister in Malcolm Fraser's government, Neil was also Federal Deputy Liberal Leader in the 1980s. He represented federal seats in Diamond Valley, which was later turned into Menzies. That's in Melbourne, where the... Well, I was going to say QC, but he's actually now the KC. <laughs> he still lives rights, and he practices as an arbitrator and mediator. Hello, Neil. Welcome to Between the Lines. Uh, thank you, Tom. Thank you for welcoming me. And it was kind enough to you for, of you to refer to my political career, leaving out the embarrassing fact that I'd, <laughs> I'd actually been defeated and twice. Yes, that's right. You were defeated in the Whitlam election of 1972 that, and the right. Hawke election of 83. Yes. The one I wrongly, and a lot of people do wrongly describe it as the uh, Whitlam landslide. It actually was not a landslide, of course. It was a very narrow result. Yes, but he still won nine seats, whereas Albo, Albo yeah. won 90, what, 32% yes. of the primary vote and two-seat majority. And, and, and the election took me along with it. Yes. Uh, and then subsequently, of course, uh, likewise, at the end of the era, um, I departed for <laughs> Yeah, you departed the in the early 1990s on yes. the eve of John mm. Houston winning that election, well, supposedly winning that election against yes, Paul Keating. In fact, oddly enough, that was one of the reasons I left, uh, because I could see we were going to win that election, the <laughs> Liberal Party, and I could see that I'd be a minister again, and I could almost predict what it would be. And I thought, do I really want to continue with that sort of life? And I decided no, so I decided to leave and venture out into the real world and make my career. Yes. So uh, you, you came, you, you were elected in the late 1960s. This would have been the Don's Party election, Gordon it was versus indeed. Whitlam. It was indeed. I remember it very well, yes. And then you left in the early 1990s. So it's been 30 years since you left public life. It's amazing that time has gone so fast and so many years have been covered. But mm. yes, I've actually, now that I look back on my life, although I don't think you want this interview to be about my life alone, but when I look back on that life, it's actually my career since then that yes. has regenerated my interest in politics. Well, I'm actually more interested in politics now than I was when I was a member of parliament. And I have to say, uh, you are an outstanding columnist. I remember commissioning you to write for the Australian newspaper and then, of course, I hired you at The Spectator. Where do you get all that wit from? Because it's a very English well, trait. We don't see that much in Australian some, journalism. Yes, some people have said that and they've drawn comparisons with some others. I try to write from the heart and I try to be a bit jaundiced, I suppose. Uh, I hope satire. I think I'm intended to be a satirical <laughs> uh, journalist, which is not as easy as it looks, I assure no. you. It's not a bit, the problem, though, is I, that some people... Th think you're serious when you're actually being satirical. Yes, that's right. They say, uh, they bring me up and complain about things I've said without realising that I actually meant it satirically. When I said cut his head off, I did not mean that literally. Um, you have to explain that to people these days. 
is because I think they're so pedestrian. You've got to spell it out. The cat sat on the cat. (laughs) Now, you're Uh, a former communications minister. When was the last time you were a guest on ABC Radio? Uh, Years and years and years ago. I did have uh, some interesting encounters with the ABC, of course, and I got on quite well with them when I was Minister for Communications. We're forgetting one thing, of course, which is important with respect, that is that since I left the parliament, I have been on that strange selection committee which is supposed to recommend and does recommend members of the board of the ABC. It was written up in the newspapers only a couple of days ago and they left out one very important fact, namely that the government does not have to accept the recommendations of that committee and the government does not do so. On occasions, I think more by accident than anything, they actually do appoint (laughs) someone to the board whom we've recommended. And perhaps they've made a mistake. <laughs> well, but, the ABC's yeah. in the process of appointing yeah, new board uh, members. Now, you've been very critical of the public broadcaster over many years. Going back to your time in federal politics, what's your problem with Auntie? Well, I, I don't have a particular problem, but I think some of its approaches are not conducive to... Uh, getting a good and interested uh, audience and making the real contribution they could make. I'm sorry to use a cliché, but I think it's if you look at the voice, you know the voice, the current Aboriginal Indigenous Mm -hmm. voice issue that is supposed to be engrossing the country. I listen to the ABC quite a lot. I'd watch it on television. But it's a very, very, very rare, if not unique, occasion Mm. when someone is being interviewed who is opposed to that voice. Yes, Uh, although you you oppose the voice, and we'll get to the voice in a moment. And on this program recently, we've had Jacinta Namba-Jimba-Price, Amanda Stoker, who's a former Queensland Mm -hmm. senator, and Georgina Downer. They oppose the voice, but see... Yes, but I think that does not, with the greatest of respect, even up the balance. Mm. I mean, it's a consistent torrent of regular uh, one-sided commentary on The Voice and it's not only... On on most contentious issues it takes a left-wing bent and I'm not saying that I think it's a ground for a revolution. I'm saying that it's not conducive either to its charter and it's not conducive or consistent. It's not consistent with its charter and also it doesn't encourage a wide audience or a sympathetic or interested audience. But does objective journalism really exist? I mean, after Mm. all, every day and in every decision, Neil, uh, editors, reporters, they make subjective judgments about the stories to investigate, sources to quote, how to put things in context. Oh, yes, of course. But I think a good starting point, Tom, is to look at the question, who shall we have on this program today Mm. or tonight? Well, why not not go automatically to alternate sides or alternate parties, uh, not do that, but have a, you know, take a random cross-section, get people to present opposing yes. views. I'm not saying you should put the Liberal Party on more. In fact, I'm quite happy to see that it's not on. <laughs> we'll get to that and in a moment. Yeah. It's its own fault, frankly, that it's not in the media more often. It's no-one else's fault. It's its own fault. Yes. Uh, what I'm saying is that our contentious issue like that and on climate change, yeah. it is important to test 
or stress test your case by having it subjected to criticism from the other side. And I think on a lot of programs, with respect, you do yes. not get that. A consensus of opinion. Now, I remember mm. you wrote an article for the Australian newspaper when I was the opinion page oh, editor. Yes. This was the summer of 2001, oh, 2002. Really a long time ago. Well, it was, but you were lamenting the lack of diversity of opinion on a 7.30 program. Oh. It was a panel discussion. It was a lunch discussion on Australia and the world. And, and your point in this article was that there was a very very cosy consensus at lunch that Australia, because of John Howard's policies, was a global embarrassment, even though his government <laughs> had just been comfortably re-elected. <laughs> what a lot of nonsense. Yes. <laughs> well, that's one of the words they use. Do you feel comfortable with this? It's a sort of one of those creepy uh, words designed to sort of cultivate but anyway, I'm not worried about that. Yeah, um, but the honest, the honest uh, uh, friends of the ABC would say we need the ABC to balance the right-wing media. Well, yes, but what is the right-wing media? I don't see a lot well, of Rupert it. Well, Rupert Murdoch? Um, well, I don't know whether the all of the publications from that stable are right-wing. I think the Australian often takes a what one would have to describe as a, a right-of-centre mm-hmm, mm-hmm. perspective, but that's a minor. When you look at all these other things, the Saturday paper and the Sunday paper and the this paper and that pub, I wonder whether they have any circulation at all. And you read The Guardian too, correct? I, well, I do read The Guardian for a very good reason. The foolish majority press won't let you read it or look at it on the internet unless you subscribe, and I don't approve of that. Yes, but... Um, the but Guardian does not insist on that. No, that idea. is true, but these newspapers ask, have to survive, though. Oh, they do, of course. I don't know how they do it sometimes, but anyway, they do. But so much has changed in the media environment since you were a communications has, minister. Has, talking more yes, than four decades yes. ago, this digital evolution of journalism. What do you make the of The grammar these? is worse. Oh, the grammar is definitely worse. Yeah. I saw a few possessive S's that shouldn't yeah. belong in someone's Spelling copy. Mistakes, oh, no, uh, it happens legion. all the time. Spelling mistakes, terrible. But the big tech companies, I mean, according to a Nielsen survey, consumers are now getting more political news from Google and Facebook yes. than traditional yes. media. so I hear they are, yes, yes. That's why I've got interested. I mentioned before that uh, since I left the parliament, I'd become interested in another issue, namely the appointments process for yes. directors to the uh, ABC board. Uh, the other aspect of the um, media industry, which is terribly important, the one I've also involved myself uh, is the uh, bargaining code, as it's uh, described, uh, that will require payments to news organisations who generate news. And, of course, Facebook and uh, some of the others Google. have been helping themselves to it. Google mm-hmm. helping themselves to mm. it free of charge. Uh, quite extraordinary. that That's the raw material. They don't have to pay for it. It's like not having to pay for rent. Um, <laughs> uh, I have an open mind, I should say, on that issue. But I have been appointed as a mediator for disputes. The only problem is there are no disputes uh, which come up because they're all settled by consensus. And I think the established news organisations, which must include the ABC, get a fair amount of money from that new change that they have to pay for it if it's going to end up on Facebook and Instagram. My guest is Neil Brown, a columnist for The Spectator Australia. Neil, I mentioned earlier that you were an MP, so this was from the Gorton McMahon Mm -hmm. era to the Hawke Keating era. You're very popular on the talk circuit uh, 
when you give speeches, many to lifelong Liberals, but you've fallen out of love with the Liberal Party, both at the Victorian state and yes. the federal level. Why? Why have you fallen out of love? Um, be, because it's not the party of Menzies. That's the reason. I just find that the Liberal Party does not stand for anything. It, if It does not stand for anything that I can detect or discern. I know what it used to stand for. It stood for free enterprise, uh, the strength of the individual, freedom of choice, limited government expenditure, or certainly less than we spend these days, and uh, more self-reliance. And all those things seemed in the last years in particular, and I'm not referring to John Howard's government. Uh, his government was consistent with mm. proper liberal principles, and if he were in charge today, he would likewise be following that uh, view and that line. My complaint is what has happened at other times and since him. I mean, the massive government expenditure, the sort of extravagance and unnecessary extravagance of billions and billions of dollars. I see we gave, uh, what was it, $500 million to the uh, Great Barrier Reef Authority. That was one of Frydenberg's doings. And that's where the Liberal Party is now. But I mentioned there were two defects. One was it had abandoned, I think, those basic principles, and that has coloured my mm. notion of the Liberal Party because I no longer see it as the solid, predictable, middle-class party that mm. it was. And the second thing, the second aspect that worries me is that it, even if I'm wrong on that, even if the party does follow traditional Liberal Party principles, it does not talk about them. I'm amazed that since the last federal election in particular, there's been almost no defence by the party of the party and of its principles and uh, its, its practices. Almost perhaps, no perhaps the centre of political gravity has shifted leftwards. I mean, the it Liberals has. shift towards it big has. government. Doesn't that reflect a Western political realignment? You look at Trump and Boris Johnson. They were hardly free marketeers. They were hardly free marketeers. But how do we know that that's exactly what the people want? We never converse with the people. Politicians don't converse with... <gasps> with the people. I noticed, for instance, these teal independents mm -hmm. are supposed to have introduced a new wave of, uh, uh, you know, involvement of the community. I communicated with one of them only a few days ago about a particular issue, and it is true that I got a reply by email, but the reply was from a staff member, and it was uh, just the typical reply you've had for centuries from politicians. We received your submission, and we'll bear that in mind. Uh, well, thank you very much. I'll yes. save myself the trouble next time. I won't bother writing. That was my reaction to it. Many seasoned political observers in the Canberra Press Gallery would say that uh, the Teal success mm. shows that many erstwhile Liberal voters have become more progressive on anything from the voice to the climate. Yes, well, um, I, I, I think uh, people would be entitled to reach that conclusion. There's a different left-wing swing. I live, of course, in one of those electors. I actually live in Higgins. Mm -hmm. She used to be and Peter I'm, Costello said it's now a, a Labor seat. It's though, a Labor seat, yes. not a Green. We've got a Green next door in Kuyong, of yes, course. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. Well, she calls herself uh, a Teal. Uh, yes, and in state, heaven knows. Oh, we've got the Greens in the state. Oh, right, OK. So we've got something for everyone there. And in uh, Brisbane, Brisbane's uh, now green. Yes, yes. Now, what does that account for? I 
think there's a genuine view in the community as a whole uh, on some of those positions. They want something done about climate change and they feel it genuinely and sincerely. They must have felt the Liberal Party was not up to scratch on it. But I I think uh, there were some personal factors, the way the government presented itself. But again, my point is this, Tom, the Liberal Party for in recent years has been indelibly stamped with a big government, big spending stamp, another stamp that says if there's a problem like some of the problems on the way women are treated in Parliament House and Mm. uh, so-called corruption and uh, criminal activity, then let's form a new government body to deal with it. That's the only solution too many people, and they're not confined to the Liberal Party. The standard knee-jerk reaction to a problem these days is to set up a government body to solve the problem for you instead of expecting individuals to do something about it. And, and no, Yes, and no question the government spending as a share of GDP no. has gone up dramatically, even after the federal Liberal rule from Abbott to Morrison. You think of the NDIS, yes. the Gonski schools, aged care, childcare. Yeah. They are big ticket items. You can no longer give, get an activity of the Commonwealth government, it seems. It could be measured in millions of dollars. Yes. But we did have the pandemic, and, and that, for the in the opinion yeah. of... Many Australians, that justified the huge increase in the size and the scope of the government. it did not, apparently, we're learning now that it didn't justify it as much as we convinced. Yes, but this is Jonathan Friedland in one of your favourite papers, The Guardian. He's a British writer. He said that just as there are no atheists on a sinking ship, there are no free marketeers during a pandemic. Neil Brown. No, that's right. (laughs) We are wandering in the desert unrecognised, you see. I was unrecognised at that time. Uh, But yes, well, uh, there we are. So I just think the Liberal Party's failing is that it's departed from basic principles and also whatever its principles may be, they don't argue for them in public. They don't say anything about them. If you watch Christian Time as I... I must have a mental or physical condition. Can you imagine? Here am I, over 20 years after I left the parliament, and I'm still watching Question That's Time. pretty sad. That's pretty sound or perverse or eccentric. And I just don't see the shadow ministers defending their party. Uh, I don't see them standing up for principle. I don't see them advocating for the cause. Back to the voice. Back to the voice. Now, the consensus view among journalists is that the voice, it's perfectly constitutional, a very desirable reform because it would only be giving advice and not making policy and it couldn't possibly give rise to obstructive litigation. Mm, What's what's your problem with the voice? Well, my problem is simply that that proposition that you have just recounted from the press uh, is incorrect. Uh, I think there is great potential for destabilising government and it's the big question that they overlook. All the advocates for the voice overlook this point that the purpose of the voice is to give advice to government on matters relating to Aboriginals. That's what its function is to be. What happens if the advice is rejected? I cannot see the government, Liberal, Labour or Calathumpian, agreeing to the sorts of demands that will be made by the voice. And the voice will be failing in its job if it does not make these demands or representations. Well, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, at Garmala, Last year did say that if the voice proposes something should be done, quote, it would be a very brave government to say it shouldn't be done. Exactly. And the High Court would be saying exactly the same thing. The High Court, 
if a matter concerning the voice gets into court, the High Court judges, and I know some of them, and I know the way they think, and I've been reading them for the last 70 or 80 years, or not 70 or 80 years, I've been reading them all my life. Uh, I know the way they think, and what they will say is what they should say. They will say, look, if this was important enough, this advice from the voice, actually be put into the Constitution. Not not just mm. an act of Parliament, it's in the Constitution and it's there for all time. Should we not take into account in our decision the fact that the representative body for Indigenous Australians asked for this foot reform or change or this new system? to be introduced, whatever it might be, social welfare, education, health, deaths in custody, the people voted for a voice. Therefore, if the voice wants such a representation, then the High Court would not say, yes, we must automatically implement what they want. They would not say that. But what they would say and what would influence their decision is we have to take that into account in deciding whether there has been proper consultation or not. For instance, that Santos oil deposit yes. was clobbered not so long ago by a federal court mm. judge who simply said... Uh, the indigenous population has not been consulted enough. Mm. So, in other words, the government, the High Court can say, not simply there's been no consultation, but the consultation has not been genuine, it's not been serious enough, it's not been good enough. This decision of the government should be knocked on the head and it should go back and look at this issue again and make another decision. Well, more and more Liberals are making those very points. I mean, well, Jacinta, mm-hmm. well, Jacinta Nambajimba Price, among others mm-hmm. on this program, has said yes. that this, could, this voice could provide an activist Labor Greens government to implement radical policy with no genuine democratic consent. No, so no, doesn't that give you no. hope for the Liberal Party that they're now sp- starting well, to speak out about this? It does give me hope that there are some individuals who take that view, but the Shadow Minister, for instance, for Aboriginal Affairs certainly does not. This is Julian Lisa. Yes, he's been an apologist for The Voice since mm. its inception. And don't forget, as I say to people who complain to me about The Voice and about the notion of the campaign, I say, don't forget... This is not a Labour Party construct. This is a Liberal Party doing. Frydenberg gave them over $30 million. Can you believe? $30 million to do the so-called co-design. It's a fancy expression, meaning he's writing out the wish list. That's what it is, the (laughs) co-design for for this voice proposal. It's a co-design. Co-designs cost you more than uh, normal research, apparently. So he gave them $35 million or whatever it was. So the impetus for it came from the Liberal Party. Mm. Neil, always great to chat. It's a great pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. That was Neil Brown, a columnist at The Spectator Australia magazine and a KC who specialises in arbitration. He's a former Attorney General in the Fraser government and a former Deputy Liberal leader in the 1980s. Well, my next guest is not Indigenous, she's not transgender, she's not disabled, nor is she Muslim or a refugee. And she is most certainly not <laughs> a hippopotamus who eats cake. 
<laughs> she's just a professional author of more than 200 books across 50 years, and she's always used diverse characters from varied backgrounds and ages in all her stories. However, as a white grandmother, she's now in her 70s, she finds this diversity increasingly challenged. Her name, Hazel Edwards, and you may have heard of her children's literature series, there's a hippopotamus on our roof eating cake. Now, Hazel made all these points and more in a recent column in The Age in Melbourne and in the Sydney Morning Herald. Hazel, lovely to have you on Between the Lines. Thank you very much, Tom. I'm glad to talk to you. Well, it was a terrific column and it got a lot of attention and I think we <laughs> RN would be remiss for not doing a, a show on it. Now, here's a question just to get things rolled. If you're not raised in a particular culture, why is it that you can't write about it? Yes, that's the key question, isn't it? Well, I think you can, uh, but you have to keep in mind that there isn't just one culture. Uh, we all live with others who've had different experiences and we need to hear about all of those, but the chances are that you have diversity in your suburb, in your family. And I've been having responses from uh, writers who say they find it very difficult because they can't even write about the diverse members of their families. Um, so we are in a multicultural uh, society, but if you're going to tackle a culture other than your own, which you probably will need to do if you are writing more than one book, you, it's only with research and respect, and I think you really have to do your homework. Um, and uh, it's it's a very um, contentious issue at the moment. But I love that Albert Einstein quote: "Creativity is intelligence having fun." And it's not. He didn't say the second <laughs> bit. Not labelling or reverse censoring others. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Yes, well, you're right about uh, the social media messages you receive from minority or unrepresentative cultures, and their argument is, I mean, they claim that the only people entitled to tell or review their stories, they must come from that culture. So in other words, you're being accused as the establishment writer of taking over and exploiting a culture to which you do not belong. Tell us more about that. Well, I, I don't feel in that situation and neither do uh, some of the writers who actually responded with wit to those articles. I mean, I think there are about 300 responses, which really floored me. And some of them were uh, presented with wit, you know, saying things like, well, Shakespeare's Gentleman of Verona, that'd be out unless you're Italian and you couldn't write <laughs> Hamlet if you weren't Danish. And um, <laughs> uh, you can't cast anyone for theatre. You've got to have the obligatory diversity and it's a sort of a reverse bias. The one I like was George Ivanov, who is another uh, children's author, and he said he was a white, middle-class, middle-aged cis male uh, who drew on his own experience, but, but he draws on the diversity of his friends yes. and acquaintances in his other characters. And um, I'd love to slip in the one, the anecdote of the fan mail. Uh, I didn't get that this week. I got this earlier from a six-year-old 
I think he must have had a bit of help writing this, saying, how come <laughs> you know how I feel and you're not six, you're really, really old. I Googled you <laughs> and you're, you're vintage from last century. <laughs> Whereupon I explained you can look up the author's date of birth mm. in the front of a book and it's got a dash after their year of birth and if there's nothing after it, they're still alive. Yes, so, yes. Um, you know, there's a very mixed attitude uh, to these. Um, yeah, it's not an easy answer. I mean, normally uh, as a long-term author, I'd say you've got to do your research and you've got to respect mm the stories of those people who want to tell their lives. But it doesn't mean you cannot fringe on those. It's just impossible. You've noted that it's difficult enough to get a story published if the character yes. is from a, a lesser-known culture. I found that interesting. And so limiting the pool of writers allowed to yeah. depict, you know, different ethnicities and sexual preference, that doesn't help anyone, does it? No, and it's very difficult. Uh, I mean, there are some stories that really need to be told, but I think we need to distinguish between therapy writing and professional writing. I think therapeutic writing is when you absolutely need to tell a story for reasons of uh, family history or that uh, uh, something traumatic has happened to you. You need to come to terms with that part of the story. It might be only for a small audience to share it with. That's fine. But if you're going to be a professional author, I think the difference is that you're going to consider the reader first, not the writer. And so you need to craft the story so it's accessible uh, to a reader. That's your sort of obligation. So I think perhaps my answer there would be whose culture? Is it somebody's past culture? our present culture or our combined future culture for all of us. Well, what if an author does assume a false background and heritage to make the book more saleable? That's what your critics would say. How would you respond to them? I've never been in that personal situation. One of the difficulties is when people have claimed that it's very hard to pin it down. I, I would say, well, there's three categories. There's fact, there's fiction, and there's this middle one, faction. But you are not entitled to, to invent things that um, have not happened or attitudes that have, have not existed. My personal experience is um, I've been accused, particularly in the last 48 hours, uh, of uh, taking over other people's cultures. That's not so. The books on which I've collaborated with people from other cultures have been by invitation only. They've asked me to do it to help them get their stories out there. And what it's more a mentoring role, and that when it's finished, I return uh, the project to them usually. Uh, so, for example, the F2M book, which was the first book about a uh, trans uh, character. It was a family friend who was involved in that, and he's now working as a trans guy co-producing uh, a comic graphic novel that has developed from that story, and the two trans guys are doing it together now, and we'll have a much better chance of placing the second project. You were, as you say, an early creator of multicultural and, and gender well, diverse characters. I think it's but, just because I was interested in yeah. coping successfully with being different, and the being different has changed from decade to decade. 
Well, didn't you author the series Hijabi Girl as well? Yes, Hijabi that's Girl. right. Tell us now about that. that. Was, well, that was a request. I was speaking at a library and Erzge Alkin, who's uh, at that stage was a, a librarian in a Muslim school, came up to me and said, could you please write something about a girl in a hijab who plays Aussie rules football because we really <laughs> need something for our girls to dress up as yes. for book week and they're just so over being Little Red Riding Hood uh, with the hijab. And I said, yeah, well, why don't you do it yourself because yes. it's your culture and you know all the details. So we fiddled around for almost a year, and I kept saying, no, you write it, it's your But in the end, uh, we wrote it together, and that eventually became a, a, a puppet uh, production by Larrikin Puppeteers, who did a fabulous job with uh, last book week. I think that if we hadn't both been involved, it would have been much more difficult to get it up. Yes. But I'm obviously not Muslim. But this isn't the only culture in which I've written. Basically, Erzge is looking after that book now. Now, Hazel, some of your critics are genuinely well-meaning and they, they just want to support more ethnic and racial diversity in the literature world. How can we do so without indulging in the crude identity politics uh, that all too often characterises the arts? Yes, it's a, it's a really difficult situation, that one. Um, I mean, there are some uh, fairly practised writers who are now becoming increasingly apprehensive about writing this area, and you end up with a type of self-censorship. Um, I think there are channels needed for new creators, uh, but not solely on the criteria of their race or ethnicity or gender, but opportunities for apprenticeships, more mentoring. And that was the reason for becoming involved with the uh, co-writing initially. The, the difficulty in this area is that I think the vocabulary changes so quickly and something that was appropriate at one time to use suddenly then becomes an insult or a smaller group has their own vocabulary and you don't know what they're talking about. And it makes it very, I've, I've learned a lot of new words in the yes. last 48 hours. Since <laughs> um, the column was published, yes. A really good story in any culture, and they need to be told. The stories that last, they've got compassion, they've got humour. They're not just didactically earnest, they've got humour and they're well crafted. It's not an easy answer. It's the same with casting for theatre, casting for films, choosing on um, some aspect rather than the ability of the actor to perform that role. And probably the actor performing the role, that yes. skill is comparable to the writer fashioning the character. So it really is quite difficult. But I, I think there's... Um, three secrets to writing effectively in any culture. And the first one is to think about the reader first, not the writer, and then to use some genuine anecdotes. Anecdotes are just mini stories, but they're usually mini stories about what went wrong. And therefore the reader's on your side. The moment you've stuffed up or your character's stuffed up, they're with you, uh, and it's got to be genuine. And you can only write that sort of material if you've had the experience in that setting. The humour, something to say, mm -hmm. and it's crafted. Mm -hmm. 
But there's a whole area that we haven't touched on here uh, either, and that's the sort of adventure writing. And for mm-hmm. that, I think you need participant observation. You need to go and do in order to write realistically. 20 years ago, I was an Antarctic expeditioner, writer on the Australian Antarctic Division uh, to Casey Station. And I've written a lot about that since. There's no way I could have written that without going, nor interviewing all the people involved there. And uh, participant observation, going and doing in order that you can write effectively rather than narrowing your field of, of writing, I think is what creates a rich life for inexperiences for the writer but also for the reader. Well, your article attracted many comments online. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the fun fan mail like this one, Dear Hippopotamus, don't you think you should stop eating cake? <laughs> and, and I thought this is, this is, yeah, well, humour works. Humour works, that's your point. And this one, I like this one, Hazel. Quote, a good writer can write from the perspectives of many. It's called having talent. If the resulting work is good, it shouldn't matter where that person comes from or what their gender is. Hazel, lovely chatting with you on Between the Lines. Thank you very much. Could I I just finish up with saying that um, moving to writing first person or using animals is the compromise of some writers. (laughs) And my future project is uh, a political satire on climate change and resourceful asylum seekers in the style of Orr's Animal Farm. That was Australian author Hazel Edwards, best known for her children's literature series, There's a Hippopotamus on Our Roof Eating Cake. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. And if you missed my recent conversation with political scientist Ted Galen Carpenter on the dangerous groupthink of US foreign policy media elites, or from another episode, my exchange with the leading Brexiteer, Daniel Hannan, on how Britain is faring three years after leaving the European Union, these and many other thought-provoking interviews are available for free. Just scroll back through your recent Between the Lines podcast feed. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.